Hello, and welcome to Charlie's GeekCast, the internet radio show about me and what I like. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and after two long episodes about the Transformers, today should be a shorter episode in which I get to talk about comic books. But before I get to the comics, I do have an email in response to my episodes about the Transformers. This comes from Michael Bradley, host of Thrilling Adventures of Superman and Green Lantern's Light, uh, Two great podcasts. Uh, Thrilling Adventures of Superman can be found at GreatCrypton.com and Green Lantern's Light can be found at GreenLanternsLight.com. He also has a blog called Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, celebrating the lives, works, and legacies of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And that can be found at GreatCrypton.com slash Siegel Schuster. Uh, Michael writes, You only gave them a brief mention in Episode 3 because you said you hadn't read them, but there have actually been several G.I. Joe Transformers crossovers. For you and anyone else who might be interested... Here they are. The first one was G.I. Joe and the Transformers, a four-issue miniseries published by Marvel in 1986. Around the same time, Only Human, an episode of the original Transformers cartoon, featured a villain named Ol' Snake. He was strongly alluded to being Cobra Commander, and was even voiced by the same actor, Chris Latta, who also uh, voiced Starscream, though they obviously couldn't say he was Cobra Commander, which... I did respond to this email wondering why they couldn't do that, but um, he made up a good point. See, Hasbro owns Transformers and G.I. Joe, and they had the same company doing G.I. Joe cartoons and Transformer cartoons. You'd think they'd be allowed to do some kind of a crossover, but apparently they weren't. Michael likened it to DC Comics and the WB Network. Warner Brothers owns both the CW and DC Comics. You would think the characters from one should be able to cross over in the other and vice versa, but uh, Smallville was never allowed to use Batman, and even the new Arrow show is not allowed to use Batman. So, probably whatever that reasoning is is what happened here. Anyway, back to Michael's email. Transformers number 125 and Action Force 24 through 27 all published by Marvel UK in 1987, formed a storyline. In case you were unaware, Action Force is G.I. Joe, but in the UK. G.I. Joe, the real American hero 139-142, published by Marvel in 1993, brought in many Transformers characters, and then spun out into the Transformers Generation 2 from Marvel later that year. A handful of G.I. Joe characters appeared in issues 1, 2, and 6 of that series. Next up was G.I. Joe vs. the Transformers, a six-issue miniseries published by Image in 2003. Transformers G.I. Joe was a six-issue series from Dreamwave in 2003. While it was published as rough, at roughly the same time as the aforementioned Image crossover, it was in a separate continuity. This one was set during the days of World War II. I actually remember that one. G.I. Joe vs. the Transformers 2 was a four-issue series published by Devil's Due in 2004 and served as a sequel to the Image series. And I believe what happened is that Devil's Due got the license from Image but continued the same stuff going on or something to that effect. Uh, or maybe Devil's Due was actually part of Image and broke away. One or the other. Uh, Transformers G.I. Joe Divided Front was to be a six-issue series from Dreamwave in 2004. It was supposed to be a sequel to the first Dreamwave series, set in the same continuity, but about 50 years later. Unfortunately, due to Dreamwave's bankruptcy, only one issue was ever published, although it looks like as many as four were solicited. G.I. Joe vs. Transformers 3 The Art of War was a six-issue series from Devil's Due in 2006, and was a second sequel to the Image series. 
G.I. Joe vs. the Transformers 4, Black Horizon, was a two-issue series from Devil's Due in 2007 and served as a third sequel to the Image series. Also worth mentioning are the two Infestation crossovers recently published at IDW, G.I. Joe and Transformers, and as well as a number of other properties to which IDW has the licenses, were involved in those. I have not read them, but I don't think there was any actual crossover between the various properties. I think you're right. Uh, ju- just each taking on an aspect of the story. Hope this helps. I've never been a huge. I've never been huge into the Transformers, though I do enjoy the GI Joe Transformer crossovers. Even though I've not read all of them yet. Stay geeky, Michael. Well, thank you, Michael. This was uh, very informative, and I'm glad you wrote in with this because I did not know most of that. Uh, actually, I they just IDW just recently put out a Mars Attacks kind of crossover event with the, along with Infestation similar to Infestation, except with Mars Attacks instead. I don't know if G.I. Joe is part of that. I know Transformers is, uh, and I also know Popeye is. Those are the only two I know. But, yeah. But, uh, again, thank you, Michael. Um, Make sure you guys listen to his shows. They are really good shows. Um, Very well put together. I have been on Thrilling Adventures of Superman several times because for a while I was actually helping him cover the old Superman radio shows. Thrilling of Superman does Thrilling Adventures of Superman covers Golden Age of Superman. Uh, Green Lantern's Light. I was just on uh, as I'm recording this. I was just on the most recently re- uh, released episode, talking about, um, ironically, the Justice League and Guy Gardner, um, and of course Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers is all about Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the guys that created Superman. So you can't go wrong there. Please make sure you check those out. Thank you again, Michael, for writing in. Now, as for the comics, for those who may not be aware, back in 2011, I had started a Justice League podcast with Isaac Frisbee from World's Best Podcast. Now, I'm a fan of the Justice League as a whole, but the stuff I really liked was the Grant Morrison run. Well, and the Mark Wade run, too, but that's for much, much later. So I thought that since I'm now doing a show in which I can cover whatever the hell I want, I'm going to cover the Morrison run. So I was going to do that, but then I realized, you know what, it actually started with a miniseries before that that set everything up, and even though it's not written by Morrison, it kind of helps to cover that to do the setup, and that's what I'm going to cover today. Now, in order to do this properly, I do feel that I need to kind of set the scene for you as far as where the characters are at this point in their lives, or histories. Uh, Keep in mind that the year was 1996, and we were 10 years into post-crisis continuity. One Earth... Lots of heroes. The Golden Age heroes were around in the 30s and 40s. Then there were no actual. There were still heroes in like the 50s and 60s and 70s, but none of them were really superheroes. Um, and then, of course, quote unquote, 10 years ago, which is what part of the ti- sliding timeline that DC was using. Uh, Superman made his debut, saving a pla- space plane and kicking off the modern age of superheroes. Now, looking in at the characters themselves, we'll start with the, I guess, the newest and go backwards. So, uh, Kyle Rayner has only been the star of the Green Lantern title for about a year and a half, real time. So, comic book time, he was still very much a rookie and was still learning about his powers. Um, He was dating Donna Troy at this point, uh, who was Wonder Girl. And, um,. Yeah, uh, Wally West had been the Flash since Crisis on Infinite Earths, which, by the sliding timeline, I believe had only been about 
three to five years ago. And uh, at this point, he's dating Linda Park, and since we are now past Flash 100, he's basically mainlining the Speed Force, making him the fastest being ever. Although, because Mark Wade was writing him, the first few lines of just about every issue of The Flash was, My name's Wally West. I'm The Flash. I'm the fastest man alive. And I love that. Aquaman had become a bit more of a grump, and not only grew out his hair, but also grew a beard. And that was before he had lost his hand, uh, after it was eaten away by Piranha. Uh, he's no longer with Mira. They, I don't know if they had actually divorced by this point, but they are separated. And I believe at this point he was seeing Dolphin, which was a, a white-haired girl that wore cut-off jeans, Daisy Duke jean shorts, and like a shirt that a button-down shirt that apparently only had one button right across the chest, uh, even though she was underwater. Whether there wasn't much of an Aquaman reader at this point, sorry, Rob Kelly. So I'm not really sure, but I believe that's where we were with him. Uh, also at this point, Wonder Woman was currently being written and drawn by John Byrne. Um, I'm not sure what that means as far as story-wise at this point, but that means that she had a slightly different costume, uh, which meant bigger bracelets, and smaller trunks, and bigger hair. Uh, Martian Manhunter had not really had his own series, but he had been in a number of previous versions of the League, in fact, just about all of them. Uh, by this point, he'd been a member of the Justice League Task Force, which was supposed to help train newer heroes. Batman, after all the chaos that had stemmed from Bane breaking his back and going through the Knight's Fall, Knight's Quest, Knight's End, and uh, then Prodigal... Uh, where Dick Grayson took the mantle, and then, of course, getting the costume back, in which he changed, darkened his costume up a bit, um, including... <gasps> he took away the underwear. Oh, my God. Um, and at this point, he was starting to feel pretty good about things until he had to deal with a devastating virus in the Contagion crossover that covered all of the Bat books, plus Robin, plus Catwoman and probably a couple specials, I'm sure. Uh, that plagued Gotham City. They thought they'd got rid of it, but now he was dealing with the legacy of that virus and trying to prevent Ra's al Ghul uh, from using it to kill almost everyone on Earth. And so we were in the legacy storyline when this, when our, when our miniseries begins. Finally, Superman, who at this point had his long hair that isn't a mullet, uh, he was single again after Lois had ended their engagement, and at this point Clark was also serving as editor of the Daily Planet due to Perry uh, undergoing chemo for lung cancer. As the first issue of this miniseries was released, he was also dealing with the return of the Bottle City of Candor, which was apparently the catalyst for what I like to call Superman's Blue Period. So now that we're all caught up, Here's a couple promos, and then Justice League Midsummer's Nightmare. After these messages, we'll be right back. The Bronze Age of Comics. An era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the Kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, 
my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weeder also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. In a world where planets die. I have come to the conclusion Krypton is doomed. Did I hear him right? Where good and evil fight a never-ending battle. But millions of people will die. Millions! Once again, the press underestimates me. One man will become a hero. Every world needs its heroes, Clark. They inspire us to be better than we are. Protect us from the darkness that's just around the corner. One man will rise to the challenge. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a One man will wear spandex. Well, one thing's for sure, nobody's going to be looking at your face. Mom? Well, they don't call them tights for nothing. <laughs> Presenting The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast looking at the Man of Steel's history via his earliest adventures in comics, radio, and film. Featuring reviews, commentary, creator spotlights, and more. Join the adventure at greatcrypton.com. Hey everyone, Sean Engel here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. Hey, it's good to hear from you. It's been a long time. How have you been? What have you been up to? Oh, not much. Working with other podcasters, palling around with Simon Cowell, prepping for the Mayan apocalypse. You know, the usual. Neat. Anyhow, uh, glad we got back together since the show, Just One of the Guys, is coming to a turning point, and since you were there at the beginning, I thought it'd be appropriate that you be here now. Ooh, are you finally changing formats and doing your epic coverage of the Al Milgram Opus US 1? Um... No, I'm going to start coverage of the Kyle Rayner stories in Green Lantern. And that supposedly is more impressive than the trucker who can receive CD signals through a metal plate in his head? Undoubtedly. Plus, I'm still going to be covering the ongoing saga of Guy Gardner. Mm, will he be getting a metal plate in his head which allows him to receive CD signals? No, nothing quite that ridiculous. Although the stories will involve him getting alien DNA, becoming a living weapon, and punching Nazi dinosaurs. Seriously? Yep. So all of this, yet the epic tale of a trucker who's vying to avenge his death of his brother caused by a man who sold his soul to the devil for a satanic 18 healer is just too goofy? Precisely. <sighs> Whatever. So where can I find out about all these changes? Lots of places. For one, you can go to www.justoneoftheguys.lipson.com to download the shows, check out the covers of the books, and leave comments on individual show postings. You can also find the show on iTunes just by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, and you can leave a review there as well. So after you finish these books up, you'll cover US-1? Maybe. I've still got that Dallas Dynasty show with J. David Weeder to do. And Scott Gardner has approached me about doing an NFL Super Bowl podcast that he wanted to do in conjunction with the 25th anniversary of its release. 
is come check it out every Friday at justoneoftheguys.libson.com. All right, Justice League Midsummer's Nightmare number one, with a cover date of September 1996 and a release date of July 3rd, 1996, and a cover price of $2.95. Now, as far as the cover, the cover on all three issues of this miniseries were drawn by Kevin McGuire with inks by John Dell, and the covers are a three-part image that, when placed next to each other, make one long mural of the new Justice League. It's pretty cool. I'll probably include it in the show notes. Uh, the first issue is titled True Lies, written by Fabian Nicieza and Mark Wade, penciled by Jeff Johnson and Derek Robertson, inked by John Holdredge and Hannibal Rodriguez, lettered by Ken Lopez, colored by Pat Garahay, and edited by Ruben Diaz, with special thanks to Brian Augustin. We begin our tale in the New York apartment of Kyle Rayner, current writer and artist for the Green Lantern comic. Unfortunately, he's run into a bit of writer's block, and is dangerously close to a deadline. Despite pulling an all-nighter, Kyle is no closer to completing the current issue than he was the day before. So he decides to head down to Red Radu's, Radu's, Radu's. I'm going to call it Radu's, for some coffee, and on the way meets up with his neighbor, who has just finished saying goodbye to her roommate with a lovely kiss on the lips. I'm only mentioning this one time right here. This is not a huge deal. I just wanted to mention that in 1996, they actually published a comic that had this scene. There we go. Uh, the two of them talk about something called sparking, and with that, and that with 79,000 Americans having experienced the spark, Kyle and Radu seem to be the only two guys who haven't. While Kyle's neighbor, or then Kyle's neighbor goes outside and literally flies into the air before teleporting herself to Metropolis for work. Speaking of Metropolis, at the Daily Planet, Perry White is getting in, is getting on to Clark Kent for his subpar reporting of the sparking phenomenon, which for some reason Clark feels he needs to cover, even though he's not doing it very well. Then Allie the Office Girl shows up to show off a new paperweight she bought at Mizia's Pitalic Toys that looks like a glowing green rock. This freaks Clark out and makes him wonder why he feels like an alien on his own planet. In Gotham City, Lucius Fox is talking to Bruce Wayne about how the Gotham Gazette keeps trying to ruin his public image, but Bruce is too busy reading a story about a young boy whose parents were killed and decides to send the boy a check and make sure he never wants for anything ever again. We also learn that Bruce does this a lot, and unfortunately, at some point, there, you know, there's limits as to how many people he can help in Gotham City. We also learn that Bruce does this a lot, and that, unfortunately, there are limits to how many people he can help in Gotham City. Later that day, at Wayne Manor, Alfred informs him that the boy's guardian, Barbara Gordon, sent a telegram to him thanking him for making sure that Jason Todd will be financially secure for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, in Blue Valley, which I believe is in Nebraska, Wally West is waking up from a nightmare in which he was doing a lot of running, but was not fast enough to help somebody. Uh, but now, because he slept in too long, he's going to be late for his, for class. In Gateway City, at the Themyscira... Uh, I think that's right. The Themyscira School for Girls, Miss Prince referees a game of tug-of-war when one of the girls uh, in the class sparks. But instead of just getting superpowers, she actually starts into turning... She actually starts turning into some purple monster creature. 
Freaking out, she hits a tree, causing shards to fly towards the girls. But Miss Prince is able to deflect the shards with the bracelet she's wearing, and then uses the rope from the game to lasso the girl before she can cause any more damage. Of course, once she realizes what she's done, she's as shocked as the other girls. Back in Gotham, at the Red Tide Tuna Company, the start of a board meeting is being delayed by Arthur Curry. He's not the CEO or anything, he's just part of the, the fleet crew that lost his hand in an accident and was promised a voice in, the, in ecological policies so he wouldn't sue the company. But right now, Arthur is wondering if he should, be, if he should actually be with the people protesting the company outside. Elsewhere, Jean Jones is spending some quiet time with his wife and daughter, wondering if there's any life on other planets. Underground somewhere, while a couple of military guards complain that no one ever comes around where they are, a pixelated, a blurred, pixelated man with purple hair walks right past them and faces through a door. Inside this room, a man wearing a skull helmet is hooked up to some machinery, and the man with purple hair is pleased that things are moving along so well. Now, this scene is also being drawn by Kyle in New York, although this isn't really helping with his deadline because it has nothing to do with the Green Lantern story he's trying to tell, which Wally in Blue Valley catches one of his students reading, and it reminds him of something. Back in Metropolis, Clark is covering a fight between gangs of sparkers when one of them blasts a police helicopter, causing it to crash through the Daily Planet globe. This reminds Clark of when a certain rocket blasted off from a certain exploding planet, Waking up as if from a dream, Clark flies in to save some normals from the debris, then flies off for help. In Gotham, Bruce is watching coverage of the battle on the news when his parents surprise him with a visit. While Thomas and Martha are busy belittling Clark for the work he's been doing, Martha is also checking out a bat statue. When her string of pearls catches on one of the wings, the necklace breaks, which causes Bruce to flash back to that dark day when his parents were killed. While four sparkers prepare to break into the manor, Bruce is having trouble finding the entrance to the bat cave behind the grandfather clock. But at that point, Superman flies in through an open wheel window, telling him that he does believe in him. Bruce is suddenly able to see the entrance, and while he heads downstairs, Superman is attacked by the sparkers, thinking he's also trying to rob the place. Superman is easily able to handle three of them, while Batman makes his presence known by taking out the last one by throwing a battering at him. Together, the two heroes realize that if they're going to have to take on a world full of sparkers, they're going to need some help. Alright, let's get right into the notes on this. Uh, page two. Most of these notes are actually going to be little Easter eggs that I spotted. Um, page 2, the editor calling Kyle is named Kevin, which actually fits since the then-current editor of Green Lantern was Kevin Dooley. Plus, Kyle has a Marvin the Martian phone, which is just cool. On page 7, someone while someone is calling out for Clark, someone also calls out for Parker and is told, Wrong paper. Page 9, on a computer screen, there are bits of news involving Booster Gold, Fire, and Blue Beetle using their civilian names. They were, of course, teammates on earlier incarnations of the team. We also get uh, name drop mentions from other people of Rex Mason, who is... Metamorpho, Oliver Queen, Green Arrow, Nathaniel Adam, Captain Adam, and Alan Scott, the Golden Age Green Lantern. On page 11, Barbara Gordon is, of course, Batgirl and actually at this point, Oracle. 
And Jason Todd was the second Robin who was killed by the Joker and, as of this point, was still dead. On page 12, Wally is actually dreaming of being the Flash. You can almost make out the costume in the in the dream. And we actually see a box with Snapper Carr's name on it. Snapper, of course, was the team's mascot back in the Silver Age and the team's first junior member. I say first because I don't remember if there are any other junior members. Page 18. Two other members of the Red Tuna Board are also familiar to you if you happen to know some Aquaman history. They are Dolphin and Tempest, who was the original Aqualad. While Tempest is referred to as Gar, short for Garth, which is his actual first name, Dolphin is not mentioned by any name uh, and does not have a nameplate, so we don't know if she actually has a name or if this is just coincidence. And finally, page 23. Um, it's pretty interesting that when Kyle wonders how he can compete with guys that good at making comics, they show a pile of comics with an issue from Mark Wade's Flash right on the top. It's also drawn by Mike Waringo, which is kind of cool. Uh, overall, I thought that this was great for a setup issue. Uh, we're shown just how wrong things are and how those who should be heroes are coping with their new lives. I find it interesting that Jean is the only one actually enjoying this fake reality, and based on later events, I suspect that he knows it's fake but just doesn't care, which is probably the one part that is messed up that all everyone else has a problem with with their realities. He knows it's real, but is trying to ignore it. I like how all the fun little Easter eggs are thrown in as well for people who also follow the rest of the DCU in general. As for the art, these two artists could not be more different. Derek Robertson's art has a hard edge to it with thicker lines and more detail. Jeff, Ro Jeff Johnson's art has a more animated look with thinner lines and less detail, similar in in to the style that Stuart Eminen was using at this point in time, but really not as good. Uh, while Robertson's characters look bulkier and really like to grit their teeth a lot, as was a 90s staple, uh, Johnson's characters look thinner and softer and may not even have teeth. Also, Johnson is not very good at faces. Superman's cheeks sometimes droop a bit, uh, like jowls, uh, making him look really old and weak. Batman's cowl looks more like a helmet than a, well, cowl. And other characters look like they're half asleep, as if he's just learned how to draw eyelids and he went a little overboard. Many of them look like they're closed, or they look like they're very dazed. Personally, I prefer Robertson over the two, of the two, uh, although he makes Superman's hair way too long. Um, and then there's the coloring. Now, this was pretty early in the era of digital coloring, and the only experience I've ever had is, you know, within the last year. But I have to question I have to question some of the color choices here. Superman's hair looks almost green in many places, as are the darker sections of Batman's costume. Sometimes there will be shading on the faces and arms to give them more of a three-dimensional feel, but then the clothing is just left flat, which totally kills the illusion. Um, however, the pixelated blur over the main villain is pretty cool. It looks like uh, you know, like on TV when they're blurring a license plate or uh, if you happen to watch cops and someone's walking around without pants on and this is what they would use to censor up the naughty bits. Similar to that. 
Um, but that'll do it for issue one. And after a couple more promos, we'll be back with issue number two. After these messages, we'll be right back. Since the day Bruce Banner was bathed in gamma rays, he has fought the creature within. The creature torments Banner. The creature is unstoppable. The creature is incredible. Now, the countdown has begun to Banner's greatest confrontation with the Hulk. And all of his internal battles have come down to one moment. One final chance to reclaim his life and be whole. And three words will change the Hulk and Banner forever. Honey, I'm home. Bigger. Smarter. Greener. The Hulk is taken to new heights as writer Peter David delivers an all-new phase for the Jade Giant. And Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, is bringing it all to you. Join J. David Weider, Lee Busby, and Michael Bailey as they turn a new corner and cover the all-new, all-different Incredible Hulk. Find the Ultimate Hulk podcast experience weekly at iTunes and at IncredibleHulkHomepage.com. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast. Experience the epic like never before. Hey, Michael. Yeah? We need to do a new promo. A new one? A new one. Why? Because we've moved. Moved? Moved. We've moved to a new place. We still read comics. We do. We still talk about comics. Because you can't do a comic book podcast unless you read and talk about comics, because that's kind of stupid. But now, we have a new episode still available every Thursday, but at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Hey, kids, comics! So remember, Hey, kids, comics has moved to twotruefreaks.libson.com. Still, every Thursday. That'll do, won't it? Alright, Justice League Midsummer's Nightmare number 2 had a cover date of November 1996 and a release date of September 11th, 1996 with a cover price of $2.95 and again the cover was by Kevin McGuire and John Dell. The title of this issue is To No Avail. Um, the writers were Mark Wade and Fabian Nicieza. The pencilers were Jeff Johnson and Derek Robertson. Inkers were John Holdridge and Hannibal Rodriguez. The letterer was Ken Lopez. The colorist was Pat Garahay. And editor was Ruben Diaz. We begin the story on Mars, where John Jones and his wife are busy checking out their view of Earth, while their daughter is busy down below making drawings on a rock wall. John accidentally drops his lens, and when he goes down to retrieve it, he sees that his... Excuse me. Jean accidentally drops his lens, and when he goes down to retrieve it, he sees that his daughter's drawings were actually of the symbols of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Flash, and Green Lantern. Meanwhile, in Gotham, Bruce has determined that someone has found a way to enter everyone's minds and twist their perceptions of reality, turning regular people into super people and causing them to forget the heroes. They decide that they'll need to work undercover as Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne until they can ha- until they have a better understanding of the situation. To level the playing field, Bruce prints out the current locations of heroes that they have known the longest, since their teamwork abilities will allow them to overcome the great odds. Uh, as they head off, the man from the previous issue that was hooked up to the machinery promises that while he's been forced to create this dream reality he still weaves the dream and that he's made it so that help is on the way at this point we switch to Wally West running to catch his flight to New York City to meet Kyle Rayner in Gotham Bruce visits Arthur and basically forces Arthur to remember who he really is by dunking his head into a fish tank and holding it there Once Arthur starts being able to breathe in the water, he remembers who he really is, but before he can get out of the water, 
Bruce is gone, telling him to meet at the Empire State Building at 9 p.m. While all of this is going on, the purple-haired man is now at some bar recruiting the help of some sparkers to aid him in his plan. In New York City, Wally shows up at Kyle's apartment, but Kyle thinks he's some kind of stalking fan. Frustrated, Wally demands that Kyle tell him what their connection is, which pisses off Kyle, who at this point doesn't know, and without thinking, tries to blast him with his power ring. This causes Wally to move out of the way at super speed, and suddenly, they're both awake. Later, the purple-haired man watches reports of Sparker activity from an unknown location while wearing very shiny 90s armor, content with the fact that no matter what happens next, he will win. In Gateway City, Clark arrives at the Themyscira School for Girls to interview Miss Prince. Instead, Clark reminds her of who he is and tells her that they are the Earth's last hope of returning to normal. Suddenly, Miss Prince wakes up and remembers that she is Diana of Themyscira and that he is Cal of Krypton. 9 p.m. at the Empire State Building, although the sky looks awfully blue for nighttime, uh, Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, and Aquaman meet up and determine that the man behind all this is Dr. Destiny, uh, an, an old Justice League villain who is using some kind of telepathic assault. Normally, they'd use a telepath to counter a telepath, but they don't know where John Jones is. Their little meeting is interrupted, though, by explosions, and even though it means breaking cover and going up against terrible odds, they have a responsibility to save people. So they take off to stop some fighting sparkers, and they all turn on the heroes. Just as they have the heroes surrounded, green energy and a streak of red quickly end the threat. And now that these two generations of heroes are now joined, Superman finally spots Jean. On the Martian surface, Jean is looking into the stars when he sees the sky above him literally rip open. On the other side are the other heroes. Apparently he's been kept in some kind of underground bunker in a Martian simulation at Area 51 in Nevada. When they ask for Jean's help, he declines, citing that he has a family now and wants to stay with them. At that point, there's a quake, and the area is attacked by a group of sparkers gathered together by the purple-haired man. A sudden explosion ends up killing Jean's wife and child. Pissed, Jean reverts to his hero form and tells the sparkers that when this day is over, each of their gods will know the meaning of a Justice League. Okay, moving into my notes for this issue. On page four, we see that Bruce has several different bat costumes in the cave, including the classic pre-yellow oval costume, kind of from the, you know, the 50s, maybe. It's also possible it might be the Adam West costume from the show, but that they forgot the yellow oval. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, but he's also got Michael Keaton's costume from the 1989 Batman movie, although the bat symbol has been corrected, and what appears to be Val Kilmer's costume from Batman Forever. Uh, page 8. Apparently, Tim Drake is a paperboy, since he's not Robin, and his mom is still alive. Also on this page, while Dr. Destiny is looking in on the various people, one of them is a sparker called Unity, who is recreating the cover to Action Comics number 1, Volume 1, by raising a car over his head and smashing it into a rock. Just like Superman. Page 11. Wally says that when this is all over, he needs to slow down and maybe take a long bath. Which is ironic, because in real life, Wally is a very impatient man, and is not, which is not helped by the fact that he can move at super speed. So things seem to drag on even longer. 
Page 13. It looks like Bruce has just drowned Arthur here, as his eyes are still wide open and the air bubbles coming out of his mouth stop. Fortunately, by this point, Arthur's remembered that he's Aquaman, so he's fine, but it's a little creepy. Uh, page 19. Billy Batson is still a reporter. Just not Captain Marvel. Uh, Guy Gardner still runs the Warriors Bar in New York and is getting beat up for his troubles. And I believe we get a cameo here of Ralph and Sue Dibney, but I'm not entirely sure. There's nothing that actually says it, but it looks like a guy with kind of orangish-colored hair and a wife or girlfriend with dark hair standing up and looking at the heroes or the sparkers flying overhead. So I'm guessing, but I'm not sure. Uh, page 24, like I mentioned above, for 9 p.m., the sky sure looks bright blue. I mean, I know this is New York, and it's summertime, but even in the summer, even the longest day of the year, which is June 21st, by 9 o'clock, the, the sky should be pretty dark, and even in New York, and we should be seeing lights from the buildings and the streets, and we're getting pretty much daytime activity here. Page 25, when light hits Batman's dark cowl, which uh, in the shade is dark blue, almost black, um, it, it ain't going to be green unless you're hitting it with yellow light, which it's not. And the same goes for Superman's hair. More of those coloring problems I was talking about earlier. Page 26, one of the sparkers looks like he's been transformed into a miscolored four-armed terror, which... Um, if you've ever read them, uh, come from Jack Kirby's run on Jimmy Olsen, and was also revived by Jerry Ordway uh, in an issue of Superman from the late 80s. Uh, the character didn't survive that fa that fight, but uh, that was a place where you could have seen him. Pages 28 and 29. I'm sorry, but Flash and Green Lantern would not be able to easily handle a whole group of sparkers that Superman and Wonder Woman were having trouble with. New, no. but it's a way to bring them into the story. This is just one of those things you have to deal with with the Justice League, is that sometimes in order to make a couple of the heroes look cool, they have to kind of knock others down a peg or two. It's just something that happens. Look at Justice League animated series season one, where Superman usually got knocked out five seconds into the fight, so that everyone else had to, you know, work hard to stop the bad guys. It's just the way they do it. Jumping ahead to page 36, a full-page spread to show a pissed-off Martian Manhunter surrounded by fire. Two words, hell and yes. Page 37, I can feel the frustration here. A pissed-off Manhunter wants to know who did this, who killed his wife and daughter. And Unity stands there with the Jeff Johnson's half-open, half-closed eyes going with, like, we did. Like, it wasn't a big deal. And pretty sure that if I was in Martian Manhunter's boots at this moment, Unity would have lost his head. Right there. Maybe other parts. Page 13, finally. Page 18. Page 38. We finally have all seven heroes united. Uh, overall, not sure I follow how the heroes here seem to wake up much easier than Superman and Batman did, but I'll go along with it since it kind of was needed for the story to progress. I like the banter between Flash and Green Lantern here, and uh, everyone seems to stay in character after they wake up, which is pretty cool, considering that, other than Wade on the Flash, neither writer really has much experience writing these characters. Um, 
which is pretty cool considering that other than Wade on Flash, neither writer has much experience writing these characters. Plus, we get a pretty cool cliffhanger of the Justice League versus a group of Sparkers. As for the art, I still have the same complaints as before. Same thing with the coloring. But after a couple more promos, we have issue three. After these messages, we'll be right back. said Mongo, Dindy. That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com Lancers, I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand. We were created, but I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Chosen by the Mystic Guardians of the Universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest join to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green, Green Lantern's, Lantern's light. light. Green Lantern's Light, a monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today. Say the oath. Join the Corps. Green Lantern's Light. Available monthly at GreenLanternsLight.com. Alright, Justice League, Midsummer's Nightmare number three, with a cover date of October 1996 and a release date of August 7th, 1996. Literally two weeks before my 16th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> 
Cover price of two ninety five, and again the cover was by Kevin McGuire and John Dell. This issue is titled Days and Nights, written by Fabian Nicieza and Mark Wade, penciled by Jeff Johnson and Derek Robertson, inked by John Holdridge and Hannibal Rodriguez, lettered by Ken Lopez, colored by John Callis, by John Callis, Callis, and edited by Ruben Diaz. After a quick one-page recap of the previous issues, we get to the Justice League fighting the group of Sparkers from last from the end of last issue, learning that one of them is the girl from Wonder Woman's school who has now completed her transformation into a purple monster. With no time to spare, Martian Manhunter uses a telepathic assault to, uh, to give the Sparkers seizures and takes them out of the fight. Unfortunately, this also takes a lot out of him, but after a few minutes uh, to recover, he joins his mind with Kyle's to see if he can remember where he was going to have Dr. Destiny held in his comic. Soon, the team heads to a military research complex outside of Butte, Montana. This being the 90s, Batman is able to sneak in and take out any guards that would give uh, that would cause them any problems and gives the League a clear path. After that, they enter the complex, and they head down to the final hall, but reality starts warping around them to try to stop them. Fortunately, every time the image changes, there's a nanosecond gap in which the Flash is able to spot a door. So several, oh no! So Green Lantern sends out a beam in the proper direction. So Green Lantern sends out a beam in the proper direction, and that pretty much stops the reality warps. Inside, they find Doctor Destiny with several Elseworld-type images all around him, including uh, a Super Batman, which is somewhat similar to us. Uh, the speeding bullets elseworlds, but there's also a flash that's a Green Lantern, a Wonder Woman with a bigger mask, which might also be a Green Lantern, uh, Clark Kent that's a cop, and a few others. Uh, the League free Dr. Destiny, who reveals that he has been the pawn of someone else. But before he can reveal who, all of them are blasted with some kind of mind force that takes them all down and forces them to the ground. And, their f- and our favorite purple-haired man introduces himself as No Man. While he continues to apply more pressure, Aquaman, who deals with a lot of pressure every day in the ocean, is able to n- knock No Man down. But when Superman goes in on the offensive, he finds himself bounced out into space, with a rather shocked look on his face, which is kind of cool. While some of the others keep him busy, Batman uses the other machinery in the room to connect Martian Manhunter to Dr. Destiny to undo all that Destiny has done, then connects them both to Aquaman, who's supposed to act as an anchor, to kind of keep them both from going crazy. None of them enjoy this too much, but it does eventually work. Meanwhile, No Man is giving his secret origin. Back near the beginning of time, the people of the planet Maltus, or Matlas, one of those, uh, were divided into two factions the Guardians, and the Controllers. While the Guardians were busy creating the Manhunters and later the Green Lanterns to keep the peace, the Controllers were building anti-war weaponry. One day, thousands of years ago, during the age of the Caveman or the Neanderthal, a Controller crashed landed on Earth. Dying, he passed on his mission to create his sector's anti-war weapon to a nearby Neanderthal, granting him immortality and access to his ship and its systems. Apparently, another had been considered also, but he turned out to be too savage. Get it? Savage? Maybe like a vandal? 
get 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 it no okay after several millennia of studying he realized why the controller had been sent here one day earth will need to protect itself against the ultimate warbringer this is why he combined his power with dr destiny to prepare earth for what it must face of course, he also said he had to do because the heroes had not been able to stop war and injustice, which makes Superman, who has now returned, point out that they all have limits, and that sometimes he wishes he could do more to live up to his name, and so no man decides to remove those limitations on all the heroes. Suddenly, in Metropolis, Superman's powers have been cranked to the max, uh, where talking creates thunderous booms that cause devastation, and wherever he looks, everything burns. Meanwhile, Flash has become a being of pure motion. Wonder Woman has found herself being worshipped as like as if she was a goddess. Green Lantern is monitoring the Earth from space because only he has the power to defend them from cosmic threats. Aquaman finds himself becoming the ocean itself, and in Gotham, people are now safe because Batman is watching them is watching over them endlessly and constantly. Jean finds himself not being hurt by fire that is surrounding him, and is actually saved from this by Dr. Destiny, who shows him that everything has returned to normal. Once Jean returns to normal, Dr. Destiny fades away on him. So Jean uses Wonder Woman's lasso to, make, to wake up all of the others, which allows them to see the truth. This whole thing was another one of No Man's fake realities. Uh, now all gathered together again, they attack as one, but before they can actually do anything, No Man concedes victory. Since they won, he tells them that it is now their responsibility to save Earth when the Warbringer comes, and then he disappears. Never to be seen again. The group decides that they work together pretty well, and whether or not there really is something coming, more and more often there have been threats that none of them could handle on their own. Divided, they may fall, but united, they can stand, now and forever, as the Justice League. And that ends the miniseries. Let's look at some. Let's look at my notes. I don't have as many notes this time, uh, because most of this was just fighting. But on page seven, I like how they show that they show that Jean's telepathic assault takes a lot out of him, which helps explain why he doesn't do it all the time. Otherwise, there really wouldn't be much of a reason for a whole league. Page 12, since this is the 90s, of course Batman would be able to take out all the guards in a military base and also actually escape Superman's vision powers. Uh, page 13, Robertson draws a great flash on this page. Although in one panel, he has wings on his boots, which haven't actually been part of Wally's costume since issue 50 of his title, when he upgraded from what was basically Barry's costume to his new, shinier, more quote-unquote modern costume. And page 32, apparently Manhunter's correction of what Dr. Destiny has been doing did not make it as if none of it ever happened, at, like uh, when Mexias Pitalik shows up and Superman sends him back home. Um, so we get to see that at least one person who I'm guessing had been able to fly is now falling from pretty high up. So does that mean that the League just killed a bunch of people? Something to think about. Overall, the first thing I want to note here in this issue is the color. John Callis, Callis is a bit better at this whole color thing as we actually get proper colors and no green hair. Granted, it's a bit of a bright blue, but that's you're more used to that than green because uh, these guys aren't Joker. 
Uh, granted, this is still early in computer coloring, so it isn't as polished as it would look now, but I'd say it's a step up from the previous issues. As for the writing, while I enjoyed the character interactions and the pacing, I'm not 100% sure I understand No Man's Plan. Uh, so he wants to make people super to prepare them for the coming of this Warbringer, but he made all the heroes non-super. Wouldn't it have been better to have the heroes keep their powers to train and teach these newbies? I mean, if you can get into these guys' mind to make them think they have no powers, wouldn't you be able to do that, too? I don't understand. But beyond that, it kind of works as a reason to team up, so I guess it kind of works. Um, that's going to do it for this episode. This is going to be shorter, but it's still kind of long. Um, thank you for all for joining me. Tune in in two weeks from now, where I'll be joined by two new guests for a commentary over the Transformers the movie, the animated movie from 1986. And then in two more weeks, where we look to the first arc of Grant Morrison's run on JLA. I hope to see you all there. This has been an episode of Charlie's GeekCast, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. The show's website is www.charliesgeekcast.com, where you will find notes and images for each episode. Please feel free to leave a comment there, or email the show at charliesgeekcast at gmail.com, and I'll read them on the air. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes. I also have another show called Superman of the Bronze Age, where I cover Superman comics published between 1970 and 1986. You can find that at www.supermanofthebronzeage.com. Charlie's Geek Cast is an I Don't Have a Fake Company Name production. All images and music used are copyright their respective copyright holders. Thank you for listening, and God bless. <laughs>